0: All right. Well, you may or may not be aware that Pastor Joe is just away uh, today with his family, and um, you're stuck with me. So sorry about that. Thankfully, thankfully we have an authoritative word that we can go to. So hopefully, I can just say what this says, and uh, you can ignore me, and uh, we'll hopefully our pastor will come back soon. Uh, but no, it is a joy. It's a joy to, to be able to be here. One of the things I remember telling Joe when I was first talking about coming here, and said, hey man, when you need a guy to come preach, I want to be able to be helpful to you and bring the word. And so that's what I, uh, I want to do this morning. But maybe as way of introduction, I think if I would survey the room this morning, um, most of us would probably place an important uh, uh, emphasis on our our actual sight, our our visual sight, as something that's important to our overall health, our ability uh, to see. I think it was the comedian Brian Regan who joked about waiting to see the eye doctor for six years and then wondering why he would wait to do that. He says, wouldn't improved vision be at the top of your priority list? I think he said he came out of the doctor and he was like, whoa, I could have been seeing things, you know, for the last six years. Well, around the new year, I was talking to a friend of mine, his name's David, he's a pastor in California, and uh, he, he, uh, he was telling me about his young son, Luca, and Luca um, is uh, a boy uh, that they adopted from Haiti, really, really sweet kid, he's the absolute best, but because he was malnourished as a baby, he had a lot of uh, health issues, he didn't get the proper care that he needed. He, uh, he, he, just, he just had a significant amount of health issues, and one of those were his eyes. And I'll spare the specifics, but the challenges really came down to the muscles that are in his eyes, which you know are many, and those were damaged. And often, Luca would see double. And often couldn't see certain distances. He just you just had a, had trouble uh, with that. And so many times you you'll talk to Luca and he'd be tilting his head because he's trying to to kind of get you in focus or or get you from uh, 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 seeing uh, or seeing you twice. And so he had those really cute kid glasses. You know the ones that go around. They're real thick. And and so you'd see Luca and you'd be like, oh man, look at those big eyes. And he was just the best. But of course challenges. Well. Uh, Luca's parents, my friends, David and Kathy, they've been very vigilant uh, about caring for Luca since um, they adopted him. And, and one of those ways in which they've been caring for him is trying to get his eyes corrected as much as they can. And, and so they've just been doing everything that the doctors have asked them to do. Uh, they've been <clears throat> making sure at times that he's wearing uh, the patch to strengthen his muscles, you know, getting him all the medicine uh, that, that he requires, and to the point where finally the doctor said, listen, like because of your vigilance, you now have the opportunity to actually have a surgery. Luca can have a surgery, a very specific surgery, to try to correct uh, uh, some of those problems. And so just around the new year, I think, uh, I think uh, ra- around Christmas time, uh, Luca was able to have that surgery. And in God's kindness, uh, that surgery was a success, and in many ways, there's lots of ways in which Luca is still going to have problems, but there's so much improvement is what my friend said. He said, no longer is Luca seeing totally double. In fact, he said even his body posture is a little bit different because he's walking a little bit different. His ability to be able to see is so much better. And they said possibly over time as he continues to grow that Lord willing, this will get better. And don't you praise God right for stories like that i'm sure we could i could come up here and share tons of different stories maybe you like me have watched in tears some of the videos on youtube where people put on glasses so they can see color right and and their vision improves i remember watching one video where a guy is on the grass and he's seeing green for the first time and he's just like this is unbelievable and, and even i myself right am right now wearing glasses and 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 otherwise if i do this it's not i got nothing <laughs> right but if I put them back on, you're clear. I can see all the way to the back. Hi, Olivia. <laughs> you know, I can see you. Right? And we are grateful for modern medicine. And we are, we are grateful for the ability to improve our sight. But here's what I want to share with you this morning. While our physical sight is vital, and we praise God for, for our ability to see better, it is not nearly as important as our spiritual sight. It is not nearly as important as our ability to see God. Nothing is greater, not even perfect physical vision, than being able to see God. And you ask, well, why is that? Well, that's because our ability to see God is both a wonderful reality of the Christian life and, I believe, the force behind which we strive to be holy. It's, it's a reality of our life and the force behind which we strive to be holy. And I want to show you this from God's word. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew five, Matthew five, you may or may not know that I have the opportunity to preach every other week to our young adults. And we've been going through the Beatitudes. In fact, we just finished them. So some of the young adults sitting in this room right now are like, Hey, I've heard that story before. Well, you're in for it again. Because as I talked to Pastor Joe, he's like, "Shay, what's on your heart? I'm like, oh man, the Beatitudes have been on my heart. He's like, well, just preach one of the Beatitudes. I said, all right, the, the young adults will be okay a second time around. But my desire, my desire this morning is to show you what spiritual sight looks like. And here we come in Matthew 5 to what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, and if I can just give you a minute of background here, we know that here Jesus is coming to, to preach. He'll preach five through chapters five, six, and seven, this wonderful sermon. And we know what's happening here is Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom. If you just look up in your Bible, you'll see this in chapter four, verse 17. He says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come to inaugurate the kingdom. Look down at verse 23 in chapter four. And when he went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This kingdom language is is throughout the book of Matthew. And here Jesus is coming to inaugurate the kingdom. The Messiah has finally come, and with him, the kingdom. And so we have here the introduction to Jesus' sermon. We have these wonderful descriptions that we call the Beatitudes. That is, they are descriptions of what it means to live life inside of the kingdom. What are these characteristics of what it means to be part of the kingdom? In fact, he opens, if you just look at verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, just pause there for a second, Jesus is up on this mountain. We say mountain, we think, you know, rainier. But Jesus is probably a little bit like on a plateau. He's just, he's up there and he's sat down. He's taken the position of a teacher which would be opposite of the way we are right now. People are standing, he is sitting, and he opens his mouth. He begins to speak the Beatitudes. And he says there in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom that Jesus is describing is a spiritual kingdom for spiritual people. No one is part of this kingdom that Christ has not made part of the kingdom. He's talking here, we'd say, about Christians. Colossians 1.13. You don't have to turn there. These should come up on the screen. Colossians 1.13 says it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is a spiritual kingdom. Only those who have been delivered from darkness are part of this kingdom. That is true believers. And Jesus lays out these marks, these defining characteristics, and I want to take us actually to the sixth one. The sixth one. It's in verse eight. It's the one that British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones called one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of holy scripture. Wow. I hope this morning that you'll come to agree with Dr. Jones. Because this is an unbelievable statement by Christ. It, because in many ways, this summarizes the Christian life. It is the, in Latin, the summum bonum, the highest good. That is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Would you look down with me at verse eight and let's read what it says. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think if you spend any time just dwelling on this text, you'll begin to see, I hope, wonder upon wonder. That this morning, your heart would swell with worship as you consider just these few words from the Lord Jesus. And I hope to be able to show you more of that today. And I want to summarize it this way. That Let the hope of seeing God drive you to be holy. Let the hope of seeing God drive you to be holy. Because as we swell with worship, we should desire to live a a holy and pure life, shouldn't we? because of this great promise and this great blessing that comes to us as those who are part of the kingdom. And, and I want to show you this in, in, a, in a few different ways. I, my outline this morning is just real simple. Three, three things. I'm a guest preacher, just three points. Here we go. The heart of the problem, the heart of the pure, and the heart of the promise. We're going to see the heart of the problem, the heart of the pure, and the heart of the promise. Let's first look at the heart of the problem. I could have said the heart is the problem. You're going to see this in a second. Jesus' promise is a very specific blessing on those who are, he says, pure in heart. But before we can get there, you just have to understand what the word blessed means. The word blessed, what does it mean? Well, it can be translated happy. So he could say, happy are the pure in heart. And that would be true. We, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to misunderstand that. Blessing is happiness. But the problem becomes is our modern ear hears the word happiness, and we're like, wow, McDonald's, Happy Meal, right? A cheeseburger with a little toy, probably that I'm going to find you know, in my minivan floating around somewhere. And our happiness can ebb and flow from our circumstances, can't it? We can we often think of happiness as an an emotional response based on our circumstances. And so our modern ear hears happiness, and we kind of define it that way. And so I want you to understand, while it doesn't mean less than happiness, I think it carries a little bit more weight than that. The word blessed here can also mean to be approved or to find approval. That is to say that the blessed person is, in that sense, approved by God. They are highly favored is another way to look at it. Yes, they're happy, but it's because God has blessed them and approved them. There is, in that sense, a relational dynamic. Because of divine grace, we are blessed. And so those who are part of the kingdom are blessed. That's why all of these Beatitudes start with blessed, 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 highly approved. They have a relationship with Christ. But then we come to who are blessed in verse 8. He says, blessed or highly approved or happy are the pure in heart. What exactly does Jesus mean? We have to get to the bottom of this. In fact, I think we need to dig a little bit deeper and define specifically what he means by the word heart. What does he mean, heart? Too often we jump to conclusions about what we think of when we think of the heart. We just celebrated, I'll put that in quotes, Valentine's Day. You walked into the stores, you saw the hearts all over the place. My four kids bringing things home from school. I ate chocolate hearts from Reese's, right? This, which I love Reese's, by the way. If you want to bless me, bring me heart Reese's. Um, but but, but we, we, we often, in our minds, we separate heart and mind. Heart and mind. In fact, I had the opportunity one time to disciple a young college student. And I remember being in my office, and he was doing this. He was talking about his girlfriend. They were having, you know, he was having some struggles with the relationship. And he said, well, on paper, she's great. And I thought, on paper? Come on, man. He goes, no, no, she loves Christ. She wants the same things I want. She has a desire for ministry. I was like, uh-huh. huh and then he went on to list a bunch of things he'd literally written down on paper. But as we talked, I realized all of this is just in his mind. It wasn't in his heart. He wasn't connected to her in any way. He didn't seem to have any more in him. And I said, man, where's your heart? I'm sure you swept her off her, off her feet with your on paper list. Right? Where's your heart? You're thinking too much. She's great, go for her, right? And, and, and maybe in that sense, right, we, we separate our emotions and we separate our mind and, 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 and our hearts and we do this. But biblically, the, the, the heart is so much more than just our emotions, The the heart is so much more even, it it includes uh, uh, more than that. And and even though we separate it, the the Bible doesn't. And and so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he doesn't mean blessed are the pure in emotions. What he's saying is, it includes our emotions. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about three things. You need to write these down. It is talking about our minds, our wills, and our Excuse me, emotions. Our mind, you could say, slash intellect, our will and emotions. When the Bible speaks of our hearts, it is talking about the center of our personality. That is the control center. Much like the CPU to a computer, it is the main processing place. This is the heart, biblically. Are, the mind and the heart are not two separate things. You need to check this and understand this because it's important as you read your Bible. In fact, I want to prove it to you. I want to show you some text. Let's look first. At Matthew 15, 19. Most of these will come up on screen so I can fly, but if you want to write them down, you can. Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. I don't know if you caught that, but just think about that for a second. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. There's two things to notice one, the heart has thoughts, the heart has thoughts. In this case, Jesus is talking about sinful thoughts. And then secondly, I would just note this. The problem with mankind starts in the heart. The problem with mankind starts in the heart. That is a significant statement from Jesus. It tells us that the heart is an extremely important place. Because it also means that the the wicked things that we engage in, they come from inside of us. They come from inside. The reason why people have evil thoughts is because of their hearts. The the wrong, evil urges, those sinful thoughts, they originate in us. Jesus says specifically, this is why murderers kill. It's because of their hearts. And honestly, I I wish that our journalists today would understand this because we'd stop seeing articles that say, why did he do this? Maybe you, like me, saw that case in Idaho a few months back, still ongoing, I believe. I think they finally caught the murderer of those four college students. But I saw a New York Times article. What was his motive? What caused him to do this? Why would someone do this? And I would submit to the journalists and to you this morning, it's because of his heart. It's because it was inside of him. That's where it came from. That's where those evil thoughts began to swell around. That is also the reason why adulterers commit adultery it is the reason why slanderers go on slandering it comes from inside these things come from internal places by this i also mean we are not necessarily merely products of our environment we are not nearly products of our merely products of our parents not just products of the home we grew up in you say oh well it's because of my mom and my dad that i do this like no it's because of your heart Those sinful things are because of your heart. There is no excuse for our sin. When we sin, it's because of our wicked hearts. In fact, Genesis 6, 5 interchanges the word heart and thought when God talks about destroying the world with the flood. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. You want to know why God flooded the world? It's because every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. The heart has thoughts. Once again, we see that in the text. Man's hearts are wicked. Only evil continually is what it says. Jeremiah seventeen nine just says it strongly. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He's not talking about the thing that pumps blood. He's talking about the center of man. Who can understand it? The answer, no one. Romans 1 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Later in Romans, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. Heart, mind, they go together. And I think you get the picture. The heart of the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. And Jesus says this morning, only the pure in heart are blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart. So how do we reconcile this heart problem with Jesus's words here? How how does a sinful heart and and, a a sinful mind come right and and get fixed? How do we understand this? Well, I think you understand first that since we have a heart problem, we need a heart solution, don't we? Right? We need something to go down into that place. This heart problem for us is our, our problem of our wickedness, or as some theologians call it, our depravity. That is, we are morally corrupt to our core. It is the problem of sin, and our sin has made us impure. Our sin keeps us from being part of God's kingdom. But as you know, and we just read about it this morning in Hebrews, thankfully, In God's kindness and his mercy, he provided a solution to that problem. That solution is none other than Christ himself. The solution is the gospel. The gospel always deals with heart problems. It deals with core issues. It deals with the source issue. If we think about this in physical terms, right? if you have cancer, then you don't want to go to the doctor and him tell you, all right, buddy, you've got cancer. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a nap, take two Tylenol and call me in the morning. You'd be like, what, doc? I've got cancer, man. Isn't there something else? No, I just want you to take a nap and take two Tylenol. That would be ridiculous, right? If you have a blocked coronary artery that's restricting blood flow, you don't want the doctor to say, hey, take some vitamin C, drink some Gatorade, and let me know how it goes, right? We need a fix, a heart fix. Doc, I need surgery. The same is true spiritually. The same is true spiritually. When we have broken, sinful hearts that are in rejection of God, we need a new heart. And the same way we can't do surgery on ourselves physically, we can't do it spiritually either. We need new hearts. We need to be made pure by God. So in that sense, our sin keeps us from a holy God. But God alone can make us pure. He is the only one who can. He does this through the work of Christ. When Christ dies on the cross for our sin. When he's raised overcoming death and he ascends to heaven, he took it all. He took all our wickedness, all our impurity on the cross. He takes our sin. He bears it on himself. And then, incredibly, he gives us his righteousness. He gives to us his righteousness perfect life. It's a transfer from one account to another, one that has nothing left and one that has everything, and we are made new, we are made pure at least positionally before God. Theologians call this the great exchange. I would just submit to you it's a heart transplant. Right? That that Christ's righteousness comes, and so when you repent and believe in Christ as your savior, God looks at you and he sees Christ's righteousness. All you had was sin, but you've been purified by Christ's blood, and now God looks at you as pure as he does his own son. It does not mean you'll never sin again, but it means the power of sin has been broken. We praise God for that. So this brings us, secondly, from the heart of the problem, to the heart of the pure. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. And we just said, if you've repent of your sin, then God looks at you as pure. And in one sense, that is true. All Christians have already been purified. They've already been made clean or washed of their sin by the blood of Christ. They've received new hearts, new affections, new desires. First Corinthians 6:11. And such were some of you, he'd already given a list in that. Uh, Here's all the sin you had, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. So it is true, as with all the Beatitudes, this is who you are as a Christian. These are descriptions, they're not imperatives. As a Christian, this describes who you are. So in some sense, the application is, well, be who you already are. Be who you are. Probably shared this before, but it's like my, my son's baseball team. The guys get up to bat, and and, and they're like, they they a the pitch goes over, and they're like, ooh, that's not you. The, the guy swings, and that's not you. Or maybe you heard it as a as a kid, like, hey, you're a Thomason. That's not how we are. And I'd say to you, Christian, you're a Christian. You're pure in heart, and that would be true, if you are part of the kingdom. That's already true of you. But you and I both know that we're not always this way, are we? We're not always pure in heart. We're not always walking in the spirit. We're not always living in light of who we are. Why is that? Well, again, it's because of our sinful flesh. It's still clinging on for dear life. And we still feel those desires of our old life and our lives before Christ. So what do we need? We need to be pure in heart. We need to be pure in heart. And so I want to remind you or even share with you this morning that to be pure in heart does not mean absence of sin. Although this is certainly a part of the meaning, at least in this life, the word pure can be understood multiple ways. And I want you to, to catch this. It can mean pure or clean. And it's true of all believers. They've been made pure. But how do we understand this for every day? How do we understand this for our on-the-ground theology? Well, let me give you a definition. To be pure in heart can also mean to have a single, undivided heart. A single, undivided heart. It is, in that sense, free or pure from other conflicting priorities. The heart of the pure is to be focused, singularly focused, In fact, James, James 4 says this way, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's pulling out this idea that, no, we're not always pure. Sometimes we have multiple affections in our hearts and we are double-minded. So what are we to set our focus upon? Well, I think ultimately it's upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 would remind us if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Here it is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind focused upon Christ, is what he says. Church, too many things went out for our devotion for Christ. Too many things. In fact, James knew this just earlier in James 4. He said it like this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Did you hear how strong that language is? He'll go on, he'll say, you double-minded. But Jim Berg says it like this, he said, God takes our double-mindedness very seriously. Commenting on James 4, he says he likens himself, that is God, to a spouse with an unfaithful partner and likens the believer whose first love is not for Christ to the spouse having an illicit sexual affair. Strong language, you adulterous people. Calling out that double-mindedness. So to be pure in heart then is to be free from that. It is free from the double-minded life. It is to live our lives as holy, set apart, focused, obedient to Christ. It's to it's set our hearts and minds on him. It's, it's being devoted to Christ and, and not to self. And what this looks like practically, it means being focused upon Christ, not on money. Later, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to go after that specifically. In Matthew 6.24, he's going to say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It says you can't have a double mind. You have to be pure. It doesn't work. You You can't rid yourself in that sense. You need someone to help. To be pure in heart is to be singular focused upon Christ and his purposes. Not even, listen, not even your own dreams and achievements. To be pure in heart means you don't have multiple personalities spiritually. It means living the same way Monday through Saturday as you do when you come in here on Sunday. It's to have a single mind. It means in our workplaces we have sincerity in our faith. A sincere sincere devotion to Christ that doesn't just say one thing and act another way. It means not being a hypocrite. The pure in heart are not divided in their minds. Psalmists say it like this, Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, in his prayer, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The pure are gonna pray, Lord, unite me, make me one. I don't wanna be double-minded any longer. I want a singular love for Christ. I don't wanna be a spiritual adulterer. Always longing for other lovers and not for Christ. To be pure in heart means to live out the first and great commandment that Jesus gave to the lawyer in Matthew 22 You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He speaks not of three parts, but the whole person. It is to get your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, not in parts. But holy, that is W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. To be pure in heart is to be like Christ in all of your life. And listen, wouldn't I submit to you that Jesus was like this? Wasn't Jesus pure in heart? He was our example of holiness, our example of devotion, our example of single-mindedness and purity. He he never wavered from his love for Christ. He never faltered in his devotion. He never lost his focus. He was never divided. He was never double-minded. He was always sincere, always true, always perfect. Martin Lloyd-Jones, so helpful to me. He says this to be pure in heart means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect and that we should we that that then sh- that should be the supreme desire of our life it means that we desire God that we desire to know him that we desire to love him and to serve him wasn't that Christ Is that true of you this morning Is that your desire And you'll notice what Jesus isn't saying. He doesn't say blessed are the intellectual. Uh, Blessed are the hard workers. Blessed are those who keep all the rules. He says blessed are the pure in heart. Listen, we can know a lot about God and never be pure in heart. You, You can work really hard at religious stuff like the Pharisees and still be so far from God and far from ever being pure in heart. In fact, it's interesting, the Pharisees, I was reading about them this week. Theologically, they weren't that far from Jesus. They believed a lot of the same things, and yet their hearts were far from him. In fact, Jesus says of them in Matthew 23, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Listen, the Pharisees were putting on a good show. They're putting on a good show. And we can do the same. We can look really good on the outside and not be pure. We can keep a lot of rules, both God-given and ones that we make up. And we can externally conform and our hearts not be pure. And the heart is what must be pure because out of the heart, everything flows. And so this beatitude actually asks us hard questions. It forces us to ask difficult things of our lives like this. What do you think about when you're alone? Or is one of my High school teachers used to always tell us who you are when you're alone is who you are. So what are you thinking about when you're alone? What do you want more than anything else? What or whom do you love? Where is your heart divided? Asking this question, are the things that I do accurate reflections of what's in my heart or are they just covering up what's really in my heart? These are good searching questions. Because Jesus here is talking about purity in all of life. I want to remind you with this too. I want to make sure I, I state this. You'll recognize that to, to be pure in heart is not a qualification for salvation. It is not a qualification for salvation. It's a result of our salvation. Purity of life. This is just what Christians are. So we need to do heart work, don't we? We need to start asking those hard questions. Am I pure in my workplace? A- am I pure in my, with my friendships and my relationships? Do, do I just laugh at those inappropriate jokes in the workplace? Or, or do I recognize it as an impure thought and, and do what I can to set my heart back on the things of Christ? It, 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 it does make us ask the question, what are we watching late into the evening? What are we doing when we're alone? What are we consuming? Where is our hearts? Even though Jesus here isn't specifically talking about sexual sin, I do want to bring this up. Men and women, where are your eyes? Where are they? Jesus wants a pure church. Young moms, do you find yourself jealous as you scroll through social media? Seeing the lives of other women and other families. Are you pure in your thinking? Those of you who work outside of the home, do you do you have deceptive work habits? Are you skimping, lazy, something else, or are you pure in devotion to Christ? Listen, I'll throw one else out there. I was thinking about this one: tax day is coming up. Are you pure? Are your numbers in line with the purity of Christ? We need to be pure in heart. Happy are the holy. Lastly this morning, we have the heart of the problem, the heart of the pure, and lastly, the heart of the promise. We've only gotten through half the verse. There's more to it. Look what it says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God they shall see God. We've come to the wonder of wonders. It's a statement that should absolutely blow our minds. The pure in heart will see God. So much has been made of the statement that one pastor said it like this, to see God is the purpose of all religion. If that's true, then we're getting to the heart of Christianity. Christianity. We're getting heart of what it means right? to see God, to experience God in in his fullness. Except here's our problem. I don't exactly know what that means. What exactly does it mean to see God? I heard a story just this week from someone in our church. Their daughter said, I just want to rip my heart open so I can see God. Because she'd heard that Jesus was in her heart. So if I just rip my heart open, then I can see Jesus. I don't know if that's what your opinion is of seeing God, but what does it mean? I must admit to you, there is mystery to this in the scripture. Because you remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory? In Exodus thirty-three eighteen. 18, Moses says, God, please show me your glory. And what does God say? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Then in verse 20, he says this, uh, uh, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Colossians 1.15 calls God the invisible God. John 4.24 adds that God is spirit. Yet in other passages, it appears to say something different. Look at, I mean, we saw Matthew 5.8 for they shall see God. There's a parallel text in Hebrews 12, 14. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The assumption is that you will get to see the Lord. And by the way, that's a very scary verse. To strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Psalm 11, seven, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. First Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see dimly and a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb of God will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. So what do we do? Can we see God or not? What's it like? What's this wonderful promise of this passage? Well, first, I would just tell you, we have to trust the word of God. We have to trust God's word. It means what it says. The heart of the promise is that the pure in heart will see God. But what does that seeing look like? What is it like? Well, there's a real sense, I think, in this text that this includes what we call sometimes the eye of faith. The eye of faith. That is, we see God by faith. John 3.3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we come to Christ, we're made alive and we're able to perceive the things that we once were able to see, or as one pastor called the spiritual beauty of Christ, there are things that we can see now that we couldn't see before. You know what it's like. You've experienced that in your own heart if you've come to Christ. But this eye of faith, what does it mean? I think part of it is I think sometimes our vision can be clearer at times than other times. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in in his little book, Mere Christianity, he has a helpful illustration of a telescope, and I think the quote will come up. He says, the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred, like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. He says, that is why horrible nations have horrible religions. They have been looking at God through a dirty lens, end quote. It's helpful. So I ask you, how's your lens this morning? Because there's a real sense here that our own purity, our own holiness will affect our vision of God, our sight of God. So how's our lens? So we see God through the eyes of faith. But secondly, I'd say this, how do we see God? I understand this promise also to be future, to be a future promise. Jesus here is talking about a spiritual kingdom And I believe even some of that is here. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the glory that awaits all who come to Christ. We already quoted it, but I want it to come up again on the screen. Revelation 22, 3 through 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. This is a description of that glory we will experience. He says, they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. One day, we take this text seriously. Our full sanctification will be realized and we will have the ability to see God and while I do submit, there is mystery into what Jesus says in the both Beatitudes and in Revelation. Moses couldn't see God's glory, but it says we'll see him, his face one day. You say, what will we see? What are we going to see? Philip had the same question. One of the disciples of Christ, he had the same question in John fourteen. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I don't know if you caught that, but he says, listen, you've already seen the Father because you've seen me. You've seen me. Christ. And we know in heaven that we will experience the presence of God. And I think part of that is that we are going to see, when we see Christ, we will see God. Jesus' words here say it so clear. If we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Only the pure in heart will see God. Only the pure in heart will come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And You know what's incredible to me? It's kind of unbelievable. There's a promise in 1 John, and again, this will come up on the screen, that is part of our application for this morning. In 1 John 3, this ties it all together. Listen to what it says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Listen, when we see Jesus, we're going to be like him. We won't be sinful any longer. We won't be double-minded. We won't lack focus on the things of God. We will be just like Christ, not identical, but like him, for he is God and we're not. And so the hope, the hope of one day seeing Christ in his glory, listen, should drive us to live holy lives today. I think it was one pastor who said it like this, not in my notes, just came to my heart. If you don't like being holy now, you're not going to like heaven. Because heaven's a holy place. So let the hope, in that sense of seeing God, drive you to be holy. That future reality that we experience in heaven, no longer... Do we want to live double-minded lives, right? No longer do we desire any other master than Christ. That's what John meant. He said, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are to run after purity, single-minded devotion to Christ because we know that one day we will be with him and we will be like him. Again, I'll give you another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, you are going to see God is it your supreme object, desire, and ambition to see God? The time is short. You and I have not long to prepare. Don't you feel ashamed at this moment that you are wasting your time on things that are not only will be of no value to you on that great occasion, but of which you will then be ashamed? It was interesting. Some of you prayed, many of you prayed for me during the passing of my dad back in December. And I love my dad. He is now, I believe, with Christ. But even in that last week with my dad on his deathbed, he was saying things to me like this, Shay, I don't know why I did all those stupid things I did earlier in my life. I don't know why I did it. I knew they were wrong, that's what he told me. At one point, we were typing these things through his iPad because he couldn't speak. And I told him, Dad, but that's why Christ came. He finished it all. Listen, I don't want you to get to the end of your life and be thinking about all the ways you could have been pure when you can be pure right now today. You can repent of the sin that so easily entangles and you can come back for a singular devotion to Christ. Church, he's coming for a pure bride, a pure bride. What things are keeping you from being pure? If you're a Christian, you already are pure in heart. You are in Christ. You are one of his children. So continue to run after purity. Confess the things that have been keeping you from being fully devoted to him and pursue righteousness and holiness. And I believe this blessing is upon you. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, I want this kind of purity in my life So, Lord, search my heart. Identify and show me any wicked way. Lord, our church, we want our church to be pure. So, Lord, search the church. Search our hearts. Find that double-minded life and purify it. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that he died to save us from these things. I ask for your help in this by the power of the Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.